The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, today we end the book of Daniel, and the challenge is going to be to cover the last six chapters in uh, just a few minutes here. Uh, but it's a story of an uncompromising life. And we began the, the study of the book of Daniel with a hymn. It was a revivalist hymn that took place in the middle of the 1800s. It was called Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Well, what I'd like to do today is to review uh, what the book is all about. Where does it fit in the Bible? What is the basic theme? What, what were we trying to, to see and take away from the book of Daniel? Sort of wrap it up a little bit. And then how does it figure out how does it all end? Well, let me begin by telling you where does it all fit in the Bible. The Bible is made up of an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The first five would be what we would call the Pentateuch, which basically gives us the pattern, God's pattern for all of his plan and all of life. Following that, we move into a historical section, Joshua to Esther. Those are 12 books. And if we start with a pattern, then this would be the perils, the, the very things that confront us in life, the, the storms of life, the tribulations of life, the struggles of life, the disappointments of life. The next major section, five books, would be the um, hymnic literature, the books of poetry, even, even though all the, song, uh, all the psalms are poetry, all of the, the prophets are uh, in, in poetry as well. But this would talk about the protests, the protests of our heart. So he has a pattern, and then we go through struggles in life and disappointments in life. So then it causes our hearts just to cry out to God in response to the various perils. So we have protests and the rejoicings of the heart. Then it ends with that prophetic section of the last 17 books, and it really deals with the promises of God. So as we pour out our heart, he needs to give us something to cling to, to hang on, and so we, we have this uh, wonderful section of prophecy that points us to that cornerstone, uh, Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the book of Daniel. That's where Daniel fits in. It's one of the major prophets. Not major because he's more important than the minor prophets. It's just a longer book. So it's called a major prophet, okay? It took place during that Babylonian captivity. We already looked at the first six chapters. And in those first six chapters, it was actually written in third person in Aramaic, but it really were stories. They were stories of Daniel's life, and uh, the first four had to do with Nebuchadnezzar. The next chapter, chapter five, Belshazzar, and then Darius, chapter six. And those are some of the, the, the major characters uh, that Daniel had to sort of circumnavigate his life through. And so we'll see this in just a second. Then the last six, chapter 7 to 12, were really the visions that were given to Daniel. And this really refers to a lot of what was happening in history. And we'll talk about that. But it was written in first person. So they were his visions, not Nebuchadnezzar's visions that we saw in chapter 2. These were the visions that were given to him, explanations that were given to him. And so it was first person and actually written in Hebrew. And you think, well, why in the world should I even study prophecy. So I've written a number of reasons down, six reasons that Dr. Ryrie gave, good reasons to study prophecy. And we'll look at these. We're going to come back to this in just one week 
in uh, October, October 23rd, we're going to be looking at eschatology, but looking mainly at the second return of Jesus Christ. So let's get right into what was the message of Daniel. When, when you blow away all the smoke, what is Daniel talking about? Basically, three things. Number one, it underscores the fickleness and the, the world that is constantly changing. And then it focuses in on an unchanging God. And then the challenge, which one are we going to follow? A fickle, changing world or an unchanging, sovereign God? So those are the three major sections. And clearly, it doesn't take much articulation to convince us that the world is very fickle and the world is very changing. Just think in the last few years how much has changed in your life. You think uh, of of loved ones who um, have died you think of the tyranny of terrorism around the world. You think of financial collapse. You think of the whole Brexit situation. You think of all of the political tension globally, nationally, locally, personally. It reminds me of the crying philosopher Heraclitus who said there is nothing permanent except for change. And that's, that's the world that Daniel lived in. I know in our worlds, we, we, we think things are going topsy-turvy and, and we get upset by things. Anytime you approach an election, people get upset. No matter, no matter where you land, it's a little upsetting. And you turn on the news and it's upsetting. Well, Daniel lived in a time like that. It was extremely upsetting. His whole nation was, was just besieged and, and destroyed by, by Assyrians. So many people killed by the Assyrians. And then the Babylonians come and take them into captivity. He was part of that first wave of captivity, ca- uh, those taken captive into Babylon. Um, 20 years later, Jerusalem gets destroyed. The articles of the temple are then denigrated, uh, taken. So the world is fickle and constantly changing. Very clear message throughout the book of Daniel. Every, every chapter is filled with that. But secondly, what we see is that God is very sovereign and unchanging. So that really gives us the theme of Daniel's life, and that is he has a life that's very uncompromising, and he stands faithfully in the sovereignty of God in the midst of a culture that is radically changing. He stood uncompromisingly steadfast in a very sovereign God. And he could do it because this God, and this is what we've seen chapter after chapter after chapter, that we, we believe in a, in a very sovereign God who overrules in the affairs of both men and nature. And therefore, the logical outcome of a situation is not necessarily the outcome that could take place when we're trusting in a God like this who overrules in the affairs of men and nature. He knows the future. We've seen this chapter after chapter, a few examples, of course, uh, uh, Daniel, when he refused uh, to compromise, when he refused to bow down to the image made of gold, um, you know, he, he was uh, thrown in a fiery furnace. And he just was not going to compromise, you know. And, and he could have hedged. He, he could have reasoned around it. He could have said, well, okay, I'll bow on the outside, but internally I'm not really bowing. I've got to do this for the good of the people who are taken into captivity because I'm in a 
humongous position of leadership in this country. And if I do this, everybody's going to suffer. So I'm just going to compromise a little bit and just bow. He didn't do it. refused to do it. He said, you know what? If I get thrown into a fiery furnace, if I burn, I burn. If God wants to save me, he can save me. I'm, I am not going to compromise. Same thing with uh, Belshazzar. Uh, when he was called to interpret the meaning of many, many tickle you parson. You know, he could have hedged that. You know, he, he could have compromised there a little bit for the good of the people, for the good of his own life. He refused to do it, and all of a sudden he's appointed third in the nation. Third on the throne. He could have done the same thing with Darius when, when he was challenged. He said, okay, nobody... You, you, you cannot bow down to anything. The only person you're going to worship is me. Don't bow down to anything. I mean, he, he, he didn't have to open the windows and pray where everybody could see him. He could have just compromised a little bit for the good of his own life, for the good of the people, blah, blah, blah. He could have done that. He absolutely refused to do it. He says, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. If God wants to shut the lion's mouth, he'll shut the lion's mouth. That's up to God. Uh, that was Daniel's life. Seventy years. Seventy years in a culture of massive change. He never once compromised. Never once. And during that time, Daniel didn't just survive those 70 years. He thrived. That, that would be like the time. His length of ministry would have been like the time when the Mount Rushmore was completed, serving as president, say, of the United States, from the time Mount Rushmore was completed until now. That's how long he served. And you think of, because he refused to compromise, think of the incredible impact that he had. Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll, we'll read some of the impact a little bit later. So he just stood faithfully because he knew that God would control the future. So before we actually, I, I just want to summarize just very, very briefly the few chapters we're looking at. I want to give you more of the overall message of the book. I want to give you three challenges that would challenge our world view, living in a world that's constantly changing. I think the Beatles actually came up with a song about that. But uh, the first thing I want to challenge you with is life is not just a randomized chance of impersonal actions and reactions which have evolved over time. Look, life is not merely about pursuing your dreams. Life's not merely about pursuing your passions, your wants, your desires, your family. Life is not merely about paying taxes and death. At the center of history, is a very sovereign God on a throne who overrules uh, the affairs of men, who rules the world, and we're called to put our faith and our trust in him and the God who sits on the throne. So I, I'm just saying, when I read the book of Daniel, I come away like this. As a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I need to be filled with hope. I need to be filled with hope because our future is not in the hands of terrorists. It's not in the hands of politicians or the House or the Senate or any government. Our future is not in the hands of whoever will sit in the Oval Office. 
It's not in the hands of the makeup of the Supreme Court. It's not in the hands of a disgruntled teacher, if you're a student. Our future is not in the hands of our boss. It's not in the hands of a family member. It's not in the rogue control of some biochemical or cellular or biological process. If we trust in the Lamb who sits on the throne of God, the throne of the Supreme Court of the universe, our future is not meaningless. It's not hopeless. It's not empty. It's not foreboding. But our future is absolutely bright and secure. Secondly, if we're convinced that our hope is in him and the future is his, you know, it really doesn't matter so much if, if I could predict with certainty what's going to happen. And, and I can't. E- even looking at these passages, there's a lot we know. There's a lot we don't know that we have to take by faith. I mean, there's the preterist view, of course. There are a lot of prophecies that, and we know clearly, that have already taken place. There's the futurist view. There are a lot of prophecies that we read haven't yet taken place. We'll look more at that on October, October 23rd. And there's, there are a lot of events that take place that we're really not sure how they stack up, where they stack up. Uh, so just a word of caution Don't try and read everything that's happening in the world today back into a particular prophecy (laughs) in the Bible. It's natural to do that. I'm just saying, we're, we're very tempted to do this because Christians throughout the centuries have done this. I've gone back through and, and looked over the years of, of how Christians have interpreted the Bible with history. And it's bizarre. I mean, every believer that walked the face of the earth during World War II was absolutely convinced that Hitler was the Antichrist and that Jesus was coming, you know, next, the next year. I mean, everybody believed that. And it wasn't many years ago, there are a few of us that might remember this, without, without a doubt, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. And then, you know, the Pope was, you know, this person or that person. And you can go on down the line. I mean, throughout history, uh, we've, we've done these things. Um, I thought it was really funny. I saw on Facebook uh, when Brexit took place, there was a guy who had all of his chronological charts of the, of the end of the age and how Brexit, just because of the ten-nation confederacy, Brexit totally messed up, messed up their charts and their red X's and now their arrows pointing here and there. And uh, So anyway, it was hysterical. So just be careful of that. Know that God, God is in control of the future. You know, he is in control. We might not understand it all now, but in faith we can trust him. Thirdly, I want to say this, and this is important, especially if you're here and you're thinking about Christianity, maybe you've never made that step, of trusting him. Maybe you have some real questions in your mind about really, is there a God? What I'd like to challenge you, your worldview is this. What I can, and I can say this with a great deal of certainty, is that you, whether you understand it or not, you were made, all of us were made in the very image of God. And because you were made in the image of God, you have an internal sense of justice. 
Now that internal sense of justice has been communicated throughout Daniel, throughout all the prophets, major, minor prophets. And so we ask, because, of, because every person has that internal sense of justice, we ask things like, well, if, if God were re really there, how in the world could somebody get away with this crime? You see it on the news all the time when from our vantage point somebody might get killed by some, an innocent person gets killed unjustly and there's a cry for justice. If God were really here, why wouldn't he do something? Or if God were really here, why would the innocent be imprisoned? Why would the guilty go free? And we're shocked because in the legal systems, we might release somebody who's been in prison for 10, 15, 20 years, and DNA evidence now proves their innocence. But it's that internal cry for justice that even makes some people question the very existence of God. If God were, were really there, why would the lazy get rewarded? And would, why would those who work so hard not get the promotion or constantly struggle? So the justice we see in this world, especially when we see things like terrorism or, you know, the, 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 the terrible things that we see in this world, uh, those kinds of things just really causes us to question um, whether or not Justice is, is it really lacking or is it at best imperfect? And so maybe we cynically then conclude, gee, I wonder really if there is a God. I would just like to say this. The Bible makes it very clear, in especially all of these prophetic sections, that there clearly is one. And this, this is a challenge to your worldview. There clearly is one who does not share our judicial inadequacies. There is one who knows all the facts. There's one who even knows the motives of the heart. There's one who controls the heart of the king like a watercourse. He knows right from wrong, truth from error. And there is one who will unquestioningly execute justice perfectly. Um, the book of Revelation actually talks about this. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged for the rewarding of the servants, the prophets, and the saints. And those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. A few chapters later, in Revelation, it talks about how God's justice will continue forever and forever. So what we're going to find out, even though we question at this point, is there justice? What we find in the Bible is that there's clearly a statement that there is a God. And when God's justice rolls down, there will be no appeal. And really the only response will be either the silence of agreement or songs of worship. That's the only response to the justice 
of God. So for those of us who are, who are believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, I mean, that gives us peace. When we go through the stormy gales, when we go through the tough times, when we go through the difficult times, we know God's going to make it all right. You know, right now we're inhibited by, we have a very shallow, short-sighted view of things, but we know God is going to make everything right. But if you're here and you're a skeptical unbeliever, just know that down deep in your heart when your soul cries out for justice, uh, take comfort that there will be a day when things will be made right. They might not appear like that now, but there will be a time when God says enough. And that focus throughout the Bible is what we call the good news. The answer to that conundrum, see there's a conundrum that takes place in our soul. On the one hand, I'm crying out for justice. I'm even questioning the existence of God. Why doesn't somebody pay for this? The conundrum is, if that's true, if I'm crying out for justice, then what about me? Am, am I the one who sets the scale? In other words, I want justice only for those who fall from this line down. <laughs> but what about from this line up? So, so if my heart's really crying out for justice and judgment, <laughs> then I'm the one in trouble. Because <laughs> the Bible says there's none righteous. There's no, there's, there's not even one. So be careful when you cry for justice because God's scale is very different from ours. But the beauty of the Bible, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of every prophetic messenger is that it points us to that cornerstone that we sang about. It points us to one who will be the ultimate manifestation of bringing perfect justice and mercy and love and grace together. And it happens at the cross where God doesn't compromise one bit. But at the same time, he says, Judgment has to be meted out, but I will actually become a human being in the person of my son, and I will pour all the wrath that was meant to be poured out upon injustice, but I will pour it upon the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the lamb. Isaiah talks about it. Daniel points to him constant, constantly. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll. He's the one that can do it. Um, John the Baptist, when John the Baptist saw him, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Isaiah said. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Now think through, we, we saw it in Isaiah. You know, Doug talked about it in, back in Isaiah 6. 
You know, throughout Isaiah, we've made reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. Throughout the book of Isaiah, throughout the book of Daniel, you see, we're going to see it again in Daniel, these angels that keep pointing to this one. And, and the very angels that, that gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream, the very angels that opened up the mind of Daniel to see these visions are, are the very ones who desperately want us to see this one coming, the very angels that stood in the pasture that, that called the shepherds and said, look, he's coming. Glory to God in the highest. They're the ones who announced the Lamb of God being born. And, and John who's writing the book of Revelation, even when these angels are opening up his mind to see all of this, John wants to worship them. They reject his worship, but instead they say, worthy is a lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, etc. Every prophetic book of the Bible points to the Lamb of God who sits on the throne, who both redeems and judges for those who have put their faith and trust in God's provision, his gift, the judgment falls on Jesus. We cry for perfect justice, and it does come upon Jesus for those who trust him, to, who, who repent of their sins, turn to Christ, and receive the gift of the Savior. Just maybe an encouragement as you read books like this, it is a lot of fun to read the book of Daniel. It's sort of fun to get in those last chapters and try and figure out what, what all those images are. It's fun to try and figure out the timelines. And, you know, I, I like doing all that. <laughs> but, but please know, it, it's fun to have timelines for the whole Bible. I've got a whole book of timelines for the whole Bible. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying don't miss the point. <laughs> The point is, what's most important, the whole purpose of it, what's most important is that you flee from your sin to the Lamb of God and trust in Him. That's what's most important. Now, it's fun to read Daniel chapter 7 because it's, it's almost, it's, it's Daniel's vision of what God gave Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. It just looks a little different. You have ten toes over here in Daniel 2. You got horns over here in Daniel chapter 7. You know, and they're related. One's to Daniel. One's, one's the one that God gave Daniel. One's the one that God gave Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel had to interpret. But they're basically the same. You have those same four empires. You have a time gap. You, you've got all these horns. You know, it's a little confusing. You've got three of those ten horns, like the ten toes, three of the ten horns rising up against the other seven. It does this three times. Uh, so you, you see the tribulation period. You see the second the times, times, half a times, uh, the second half of the tribulation uh, take place there. Um, have this incredible persecution. If you want to read more about it, turn to Revelation chapter 12. You can read a whole lot more about it. 
you know, chapter 8 goes into what's happening politically, geopolitically during the Western world with Alexander the Great. You have the Seleucids of Syria. They have the Ptolemies of Egypt. You got little Israel stuck in between. You have chapter 9, which is like a magnifying glass of chapter 7. So when you read the end of the book, just don't think of it chronologically. Think of it more like the Gospels. You know, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you got, oh, Matthew, Jesus is born. You go through Matthew born, lived, died. Oh, Mark, oh, he's born again. So you don't think, oh, Jesus was born four times. No. Uh, so it's not chronological, but each one sort of emphasizes and looks more deeply at another section. Chapter 9 is a wonderful chapter. It's got Daniel's prayer. It's got what we would call the the great parenthesis. That's the time that we're in now, that time between his first coming and second coming, between after the 69th week, before the 70th week. And I've probably already lost you, so let's quit talking about that. Uh, so, and then the, the last three is, is uh, a beautiful end of time. I mean, you see it in Ezekiel 38. You see it in Ezekiel 39. You see it in Joel chapter 2. But basically... Now, okay, tune back in, getting back to the punchline, tune back in. The whole thing points to the coming again of Jesus Christ. That's it. It all points there. And you have another one of those angels. And at the time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as there's never been, uh, where the nation rises up against nation, a time when people will be delivered, everyone whose name will be... Uh, everyone whose name was written into the book of life will be delivered. And the whole point is, the whole point is, we get so stressed out about what's happening in the world. And I'm not saying, you know, they're not valid concerns. But please understand, even though the world around you is constantly changing, the, think back. The greatest king that ever existed, Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned for 43 years, uh, 43 years, came and went. Belshazzar came and went. Darius came and went. I mean, my guess is, for most of us, we'd have probably never even heard of the name Nebuchadnezzar had it not been for the Bible. He's one of the greatest kings that ever lived. 43 years. But like Daniel, uh, we can stand uncompromisingly faithful to a sovereign God. This God can overrule the affairs of men and nature. Am I willing to trust him, to lean on that cornerstone, that rock? I want to give you a few applications to the book of Daniel that I think come through so powerfully chapter after chapter after chapter. And that is, I think, in the midst of a lot of uncertainties and struggles in life, you know, almost, think of all the songs that we sing as Christians, a lot of them, all, all of the psalms deal with the pain and the heartache of life. It takes the pattern 
of life that God has given us, and then the struggles of life, and we wonder, how do they meet? How do they make sense? Why is there so much struggle? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much sorrow? And what I think we get from this book and from the whole Bible is that we can allow our hearts to cry out with the hearts of St. Isaac Watts, Oh God, our help in ages past. That's the story of the Bible. Oh God, our help in ages past. That's our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. You know, and then he says, you know, under the shadow of thy throne. You know, that's where we have to stay through the storms of life, under the shadow of his throne. That's where we can dwell securely, short as the watch that ends the night. It's all going to end. It's all going to end. But who are we going to trust in? Where, where is going to be our confidence? Where is going to be our hope? Um, secondly, if, and almost all of us are here in some form or another, if we, in some area, are in a position of power, could be at work, home, school perhaps, organization, church, whatever, if you are in a position of power, I think the warning of Daniel is don't be deceived. Um, the power that you have doesn't come from you. Uh, it comes from God. So don't misuse power that comes from God. Maybe we're a servant of the government. Don't misuse power that comes from God. So don't be entranced by your own achievements. Don't be enthralled by your own abilities or health or wealth. You know, look, it's so clear from the book of Daniel. God is the one who lifts up. God is the one who puts down. God is the one in control. And I think understand as well, as, as I look at the book of Daniel and I look at, boy, you, you have these Nebuchadnezzars and Belshazzars and Darius's and Cyrus of Persia. You have all these people. Just understand, understand that um, whatever position you're in, it will come to an end. Might be as a parent, you know, we, we might call it retirement or whatever if, if uh, in a job situation, but whatever it is, at some point it will come uh, to an end. So your hope had better be in something far bigger in what you do. So be careful. Um, so the world's fickle, constantly changing, there is a God who is sovereign and totally unchanging. So the biggest question is, who will be your master? That's the question. That's the clarion call throughout this book, to put your hope, your trust in the cornerstone, the Lamb of God, not in an 
fickle, unchange, uh, fickle changing world. Um, you know, the, the beauty is, even though Daniel was failed and refused to compromise, uh, Daniel did it. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. And it was because he refused to compromise, Nebuchadnezzar did as well. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. I blessed the Most High, praised and honored him who lives forever. King Darius did. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God, enduring forever. And so the, really the question is, are you a child of God who's put his or her faith and trust in the cornerstone, this living one, the Lamb of God, who has come to save the world? Is that where you've put your hope and trust or in the kingdoms of this world? So my challenge from this book would be, did you not hear Daniel's question, the only king who didn't trust Yahweh was Belshazzar. So did you not hear Daniel's challenge to Belshazzar? Belshazzar, have you not humbled your heart though you knew all this and you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven? So the challenge would be to humble yourself, to understand but the God of the universe in his love and compassion for you, in his great mercy, even though he can't compromise his justice, even though his judgment will come, he has poured it all, even though, hey, <laughs> we deserve it. We deserve every bit of it. Yet he chose to pour it on Christ for those who would receive his gift. So that's my challenge uh, to you. That's our only hope, the Son of Man. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. You know who that Ancient of Days was? The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man that came, born in the Virgin Mary, is the one um, that put on human flesh, who came, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross in our place, who paid the penalty of every sin who would ever receive him, repent of their sins, and trust him. Folks, the gospel is our only hope, and it can only be found in Jesus. Our only hope will never be found in who's elected the next president. It will never be found in who's your friend or who's your spouse or your team or your job or your school or your hobby. Our only hope is found in Christ. Well, let's all stand up and I'll close with a word of prayer. And just stay standing. After I pray, stay standing and then we'll sing together. God, thank you. Thank you for the book of Daniel. Uh, we have discovered that you are a living God at work in the affairs of men and nature and that we need not fear even though tears rain on earth, even though men hide their faces uh, from them, uh, even though there are circumstances of life that squeeze, that hurt, that are painful.
yet you are in control of all. You are very, very big, and we're not. God. So for the one who trusts and obeys and walks and is faithful to you, you shall triumphantly overcome. So thank you. Thank you for the example, the prophecies, the promises of Daniel, so that we can dare to be a Daniel that we can dare to stand alone, to have a purpose firm, and to make it our own. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope, our shelter, security, you are the one in whom we trust. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.